Hello and welcome to The Stooshy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Adele Merson and Callum Ross to look at the hot topics at home and around the country. Today there is a whole long list of stooshies we can pick out, including the incredible saga of the gender reform law which just keeps rumbling on. We'll of course talk about that, the late nights of things, the controversy and the intervention of the Scottish Secretary, who the SNP are now calling the Governor-General. We've had major government interventions there and more widely across the economy separately. Freeports have brought potential regional investment to two places in Scotland, but left others disappointed, not least in Aberdeen, where resentment is clearly building. And on that note, we're looking at the future of the economy away from oil and gas with a special interview and feature. Adele Merson of the Press and Journal is here to tell us about the little discussed views of the younger people who are maybe getting fed up hearing about fossil fuels. Yeah, so I spoke with Green activist Guy Ingerson, who is from Aberdeen earlier this week. I was just hoping to get a little bit of a different perspective, I guess, from him. He was keen to stress, you know, not everyone in the northeast feels the same as perhaps some of the more prominent industry and business voices do, particularly in this case amongst younger people. Uh, he actually worked in the oil and gas industry himself for a decade and is now a green. So I started by asking him how he went from a job in that industry to being an activist for the Scottish Greens. So ever since I was a kid, I was really interested in the environment. We've all been raised with uh, David Attenborough on our TV screens. So I was always aware that there were environmental issues around oil and gas. When 2015 came and so many people started losing their jobs, you know, we lost anywhere up to 120,000 jobs in, in the sector. Those were friends, family, colleagues who I saw getting made redundant. That really opened my eyes not only to the environmental issues, but to the fact that this is an insecure industry for people as well. There didn't seem to be a plan around the oil and gas industry. You know, we've seen what happened when coal mines were shut down. We've seen the devastating impact that had on communities. Um, and I think, you know, we really need to be prepared for that in, in Aberdeen. Um, we've already seen the beginning of that process. We need to have clarity about, about what we're going to do about it for people and for the planet. And I know you're a student at the moment, aren't you? And you mentioned that many of your classmates don't want to go near oil and gas once they graduate. Um, you know, do you feel that younger people are leaving the Northeast because they perhaps don't feel that they have much of a future up here in terms of professionally? So I'm not a student anymore. I, I graduated uh, last year, so um, kudos to me for that. Um, but when I when I graduated, when I was speaking to, to people um, about, you know, what, what they wanted to do now and where they wanted to go, so many of them said that they wanted to leave. They said the only jobs you can get are in oil and gas um, and I don't want to end up getting made redundant after six months or a year or two years. Or they went, you know, there were other reasons as well. You know, Aberdeen has a, a difficult reputation at times. You know, we've seen so many empty buildings, uh, whether it's shop fronts, offices. Uh, rents are still high, even though other in other parts of Scotland, rents have been increasing at a much faster pace than they have here. So a combination of all of those things meant that the students that I was speaking to, the, my peers, most of them wanted to leave and quite a few of them have already. I remember reading in Energy Voice, um, you know, people taking oil and gas related degrees has decreased by over a third. 
um, in the last few years. More and more people are not only seeing the damage that it does to the environment, but potentially the damage that it can do to their career prospects. So yeah, I think industry really needs to take on board what people are saying, um, but they also need to, to look at how people are, are, are voting on their feet uh, and actually leaving the region. So do you, do you often think the narrative um, that's put out there, particularly, I guess, last week when the new energy, the Scottish government's new energy strategy was published, perhaps doesn't uh, portray the whole picture, so to speak, that there is a diversity of views out there when it comes to the future of oil and gas? Yeah, I think in, in media um, and in politics, we the, the Northeast is often depicted as a, a region of petrol heads. You know, everyone's in oil and gas. Everyone wants oil and gas to continue forever. And we're this homogenous block of people who who want the same thing. And that's not true of our region. It's not true of any region. Uh, in 2021, uh, the Northeast elected its first Scottish Green MSP for in 14 years. That's quite a big deal, especially since we've had the oil price crash. Um, you know, we have situations such as the, the war in Ukraine. People are more and more aware of environmental issues. They're more and more aware of the, the damage that fossil fuels are doing. So the, the region is, is not this homogenous block. Even in places like Aberdeen Central, you know, the Scottish Greens ran a constituency candidate for the first time in the region during a Scottish election. Um, and they won their deposit back. Um, and they, they beat the Lib Dems in that, in that contest. So... You know, you can see that there is a diversity of views there, but far too often the region is portrayed uh, as this one, you know, a group think uh, style region. And that's just not true of here or anywhere else in the country. Uh, there was a survey done as part of this new energy strategy. They spoke to various energy sector workers and the majority of them thought it would have, uh, particularly oil and gas, I think, thought it would have a big impact on their jobs, the green transition. And they mentioned a number of sort of key barriers that they see existing um, for them moving into green jobs. That included a sort of lack of information as to how they reskill or retrain and also issues around finding equivalent good pay. As as we both know, oil and gas can come with very large salaries. Uh, do you think the government needs to be well, two separate issues there, really? Do you think the government has to do more on the sort of practicalities around how do oil and gas workers go about making that transition? You know, it's all well and good speaking about it, but how does it actually happen? Like giving some practical tips to them. And on the pay issue, I mean, do you think the government has to be more realistic that probably the incomes are not going to be as high, um, potentially, under green jobs? Well, the strategy itself um, is the beginning of a process. So, you know, before before the strategy was laid out, the, the policy of the Scottish government was maximum extraction. This new strategy document sets out that that has now changed. Um, with Greens in government, we're now going to move more swiftly to that just transition. So people know why we need to do that transition, you know, climate emergency. People know where it needs to happen, primarily in the, the northeast, but also in the highlands and islands. What people are looking for now is the how and the when. So this document start to lay out the when. You know, we're looking, we're looking at dates like twenty fifty to really get, you know, get this pushed across. Uh, looking at the uh, twenty forty five climate targets, net zero targets as well. So the dates are starting to be formulated now. Some of these dates might change. Um, you know, as as the needs of of Scotland change. Um, some of these dates might be pulled forward as we make progress. Some of them might be pushed back slightly, um, you know, because we have had crises like the, the war in Ukraine. 
the how is obviously the thing that is the biggest barrier to to a lot of people and i'm aware of that more than more than anyone else you know when i when i was looking at uh, the oil and gas sector uh, to move out of the oil and gas sector my skills at that time were in procurement and material logistics in the northeast if you want any job in procurement or material logistics you are almost inevitably going to either be working in oil and gas or if you are lucky you might work in the agricultural sector uh, at a push but generally speaking that's where those skills were when the oil price crashed you also see numerous news stories about people not being hired because they were former oil and gas workers and there was a fear that those workers would then return back into the oil and gas industry uh, once once you know the, the price started to increase. This strategy document is not designed to lay out the how. That's going to be that's going to be followed up. This strategy is a high level. This is basically giving you the, the main aims, objectives, the mission statement of where the Scottish government want to go. Um, I'm hoping in the next five years, uh, through the term of this parliament, we will see more on the how. But we've already seen some of that, you know, uh, those questions being answered. We've got the £500 million Just Transition Fund, um, which the first tranches of money have have been given out to people. So the Scottish government, uh, because I would say, actually, because Greens are in government, are already starting starting that process. So I hope to see that continue um, and, and answer the questions that have been been put to people like yourselves. The the Northeast Authority last week lost out on green freeport status and um, there have been delays to projects such as carbon capture ones, such as the Acorn project in Aberdeenshire. I know your party, the Greens, are opposed to, were opposed to both of these things, uh, are opposed to both of these things. And uh, I guess the question is, what, you know, what are the Greens, the Green Party solutions then for finding alternative jobs at scale for those leaving the oil and gas industry? Because... Certainly, it was understood that both green freeports and carbon capture could potentially bring thousands of jobs to the region. Well, we've heard about thousands of jobs um, before. You know, when Trump, Trump's golf course came to the region, we, we heard that it would create 5,000, 6,000 jobs. It created a couple of hundred. Um, we hear these lofty uh, job figures a, a lot. And I would suggest that we need to really question where those figures are coming from, because most of those are, are guesses. Some of them are educated. You know, uh, you can you can say that if you build this thing, it will need X amount of people to, to actually run it. But a lot of these things are, are based on potential market trends um, and they're not fixed. So that's the first thing I would say on that. I've already said one of the solutions, you know, looking at uh, extra government finance in the alternatives. So I've already mentioned the Just Transition Fund, but also looking at other projects such as the Campaign for Northeast Rail. I think expanding rail services in this region could be hugely transformative um, when it comes to jobs. A lot of the time, the focus is on, you know, getting people directly from oil and gas and into renewables. That might not actually necessarily be the case, you know. Um, there are other jobs out there. Uh, when it comes to engineering, you can re-school, retool and reskill into civil engineering projects, for example. Um, Scotland has a has a very active construction industry, um, and we actually can export some of those those jobs as well, um, because obviously things are not just built in Scotland; they're built <laughs> across the world. Um, so there, the alternatives are potentially there. When it comes to things, and, and you know, the government is actively uh, putting money into those alternatives. When it comes to uh, the issue of uh, reskilling and retooling and getting sub, you know, a similar amount of pay, I can't guarantee, and I don't think anyone can guarantee that if you're paid, you know, a hundred thousand pounds a year, that 
the the next job you'll get as part of this transition is going to have the exact same amount of money. I can't guarantee that, and I don't think the government can guarantee that, and I think it would be wrong to do that. But most of these renewable jobs are high-paid, they're well-paid, and they're usually trade unionized as well. So um, as we already know, if you are in a trade union, you're more likely to have have a higher pay and better terms and conditions. So I think if we're if we're looking to, to the transition, um, we need to make sure that we're not just talking about renewables, that we're also talking about other alternatives to, to oil and gas jobs. But can you understand why there are some people within the Northeast who get incredibly anxious when they hear or see certain statements being made about winding down oil and gas and you kind of admitted there that it seems like the high level plans there but because there aren't necessarily yet these practical steps for how they can do do, do you not do you get where that anxiety comes from I guess that they perhaps feel these statements are being made but they have no idea how to move into that industry of course of course they do I mean Many of my friends and family are, are still involved in the industry. You know, I, I've spoken to them and, and they've said to me, you know, I'd love to move out of the oil and gas industry. I don't, it, not just because of the, the practical implications on the climate emergency, but for many of them, it's a very stressful industry, you know. And increasingly, since the oil price crash, people are being asked to do more for less. Um, so there are numerous cases of, you know, uh, workers starting to become frustrated. You know, we saw sort of late last year wildcat strikes on oil rigs because oil and gas workers were getting frustrated about how much they're expected to do for how little pay um, in, and, in, and in less than ideal uh, conditions. So I understand their, their fears and their anxieties. I, I've made that transition, I guess. Uh, I had those same fears and anxieties. Uh, I was working in an oil and gas job. Um, and I had to make the, the slightly difficult decision um, to go back to being a student. Uh, doing that in your 30s is very daunting. Um, so I can imagine how daunting it would be for someone who's maybe in their 40s or 50s who has no, no, no other, other sector than oil and gas. So I understand those fears and concerns. But I would like to say to people that I'm living proof that it is possible to do that. And, and to get a job that you love and enjoy at the end of that process. That's great. Thank you for joining us, Guy. Thank you so much for having me. That was Guy Ingerson speaking with Adele Merson earlier. The subject of investment in energy in the country was raised at Parliament the other day too on a similar sort of theme. Campaigners were in Holyrood, outside Holyrood. Um, they'd come down from the northeast to push the case to save green space around the city, which is in the way of expansion for industry around the southern harbour of Aberdeen. Now, for those who don't know, it's a spot called St Fittix Park on the edge of the city. And while it's clearly a big deal there, anyone listening will recognise this kind of battle wherever urban meets rural and communities come head to head with industry. Rachel Amory nipped out to speak to the protesters who want change, but they wonder at what cost it is coming. Just tell your name first of all. Richard Kai from Torrey, Aberdeen. I'm Ishvel Shand, I'm from Aberdeen. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Peg Shaw. I um, currently live in Edinburgh by way of Aberdeen, and previously I was in the States. Very good. How important is it to have campaigns like this for green spaces in Torrey? Oh, it's essential, and I really want to tip my hat to the Friends of St. Fittix Park for their campaign that's been relentless, defending the rights of the community for open green space and public health. Um, and biodiversity and, and, and whatnot. So I think these events are really, really important. Unfortunately, the situation has gotten to the point where these kinds of events have to happen because, uh, you know, the government is, um, I guess, prepared to 
let that part go. Oh, wonderful that we can demonstrate. But uh, in order to demonstrate effectively, ministers have to listen to what we have to say. How important is it that this green space is preserved in Torrey? Oh, it's vital. There's 10,000 people living in Torrey. And uh, so many big industrial developments have been forced on the place. Uh, the new harbour, the wastewater plant, the incinerator. So if, if this does go ahead, we'll just be surrounded by uh, industry. How important is it to have this process here today? Well, I think we're being ignored because we're being regarded as being out with the central belt. Uh, so the shenanigans that are going on up there are not being properly looked at. So I think it's very, very important. And I think it's extremely important that we got so much support from local people in the central belt. It's quite a difficult balance between getting this just transition for the oil and gas industry while also maintaining what the community needs. I mean, how much of an issue is that here? I don't think it's any at all, because if you look at the plan, uh, they plan on taking over, I don't know how many acres, but it's probably in the tens of dozens or maybe hundreds of acres for their transition zone, which is still undefined. Um, and I'm convinced that with all of the uh, intellect and creativity, um, housed within those folks that they can creatively figure out how they can leave St. Phoenix Park alone, which is only 15 or 17 acres, and do what they need to do or what they think they want to do on that land elsewhere with the land that they're already going to be using. So um, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a contrast at all. And I actually think if you ask the people in Torrey or in, or in the front of St. Phoenix Park that they support a just transition, of course we do, but not at the expense of, of a community that's already under an incredible amount of stress and this is the only green space they have. I think it's an environmental justice issue from the perspective of, of the Torrey residents. It is a fantastic idea having an energy transition zone, but you don't trash a beautiful green space in order to build one. We've got two underused industrial estates, the Altons and Torrey. They're just next door, so all the energy transition zone, all the wonderful technology that's been developed, that could easily fit in there. Is it not good, though, to have um, this, this energy zone in somewhere where it relies so heavily on oil and gas? Aberdeen is full of empty brownfield sites. The Energetica Corridor, uh, which planned to diversify, cost £588 million of public money and created 352 jobs. This is a scam. They've managed to get £57 million of public money. There are lots of places where they could develop energy transition activities. If you think of Aberdeen, I used to live in Aberdeen myself, and you think of it, it's the oil and gas industry, there's, um, and the energy, that's all it is. But there is obviously this huge population within Aberdeen who are very much wanting to campaign for biodiversity and, and green energy. That's right. And, and to, the, to the city council's uh, credit, they, they helped to organize £350,000 of investment into rest, restoring the East uh, Tullis Burn, which runs through the park and uh, increasing the biodiversity and also the uh, capacity to deal with flooding of that park. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, increasing the richness of um, green space and, and uh, livability for the people of Torrey. So once upon a time, you know, they were doing the right thing, but I think unfortunately, like what we see happening internationally, 
that the powers of you know oil and gas and their um, political um, allies are just you know ignoring the impacts and, and the needs of local communities, and we see that happening everywhere. The amazing thing is that the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of people who work in oil and gas, their children are going to be affected by climate change. So just because you work in the oil and gas doesn't mean you're exempt from the climate change. Do you think because there is such a, a large oil and gas industry in the northeast, do you think that has driven more of this environmental campaigning for a just transition? I, I, no, I think the, the oil and gas industry realise that their number is up and they, they don't want to have a proper transition. They want to control the type of technologies that we use. The whole blue hydrogen thing, which I am glad to see the Scottish government has backed off yesterday's energy draft energy report, shows that they have now backed off the ridiculous blue hydrogen scheme that would have meant consumers in Aberdeen paying six times as much to heat their homes as elsewhere. If this was to go ahead in St Fictix Park, uh, how much of an impact is that going to have on the local community? How much? 155% impact on the community. It's a huge loss. Like it's, it's completely unconscionable and immoral to even think about this. I mean, if you're from Aberdeen, you've, I don't know if you're familiar with Tory. Um, or the park itself, but um, it's, first of all, it's an oasis in an urban environment where there's very little other green space. Um, and as I said earlier, that community is one of the most stressed communities actually in the country. And so having access, easy access for children and elderly people and everybody to be able to walk out their door and come into that park. How important is it that these campaigns are done now to, to sort of preserve these spaces and preserve the the sort of environmental movement for future generations? Oh, no, I mean, it should have been done 50 years ago, but now is the best time because we've, we have to make important decisions about what kind of infrastructure we are, are going to have, what kind of policies we are going to have for the future. And we want to electrify everything, use hydrogen only where it's necessary because it's an expensive, inefficient fuel substitute for a fuel, it's a manufactured process. So we want a public debate, especially in Aberdeen. Why haven't we invested that money in insulating our homes, in cutting our fuel bills in that way, on a permanent way, by reducing the amount of energy that we need, instead of handing out money to the oil and gas industry? That was Rachel Amory speaking with campaigners outside the Scottish Parliament. There's always tension there with progress and conservation. Um, we, we saw that with the Freeport's decision as well this week. Adele, you mentioned Freeport's in your interview with Guy Ingerson earlier. I just wonder if we could maybe expand a little bit on that. Well, what are these Freeport's? Like what's happening there with the bids in various parts of the country? Yeah, it's been a long-running project by both the UK and Scottish governments to award two new green freeports in Scotland. Um, the two, uh, these would be uh, designated areas that would benefit from sort of tax incentives and things. And the hope is that they prove very lucrative and create lots of jobs. Is so certainly what the bidders hope. 
in terms of so we've been waiting a long time for a decision, mainly because of the ever-changing leadership of the Conservative Party. But we eventually got the results, which we exclusively revealed <laughs> previously ourselves, um, that the winners were Cromarty Firth and the Firth of Forth. So Northeast bid, a joint bid between Aberdeen and Peterhead. They had been hoping to win it, but actually came in at a distant fourth. You can read more about what went wrong with the Northeast bid in a long read by my colleague Callum Ross, which is on the Press and Journal website. Yeah, and, and it's a it's a great glimpse behind the curtain as well, isn't it? We were speaking to a lot of insiders from the Scottish government, the UK government, and the bids connected. Because it feels like Aber- Aberdeen has been, that was seen as a front runner. And Callum, you were looking at this a lot, uh, obviously, in, in working into this story. Aberdeen felt like it was a front runner was a fair way to frame the whole thing or did, or was that just kind of a bit of speculation politically? I mean the first time I had certainly heard of a Freeports in this kind of context um, was in uh, June 2019 when Press and Journal ran a story that had been briefed by um, supporters of Boris Johnson who at the time was um, uh, trying to become the new leader of the Conservative Party mm. and uh, Prime Minister, uh, which he would do a few weeks later, and the the briefing was basically that that because of Brexit, um, the North East would was going to be able to cash in and and host uh, a Freeport. Um, I think there was a suggest there was a question over whether it would be Aberdeen or Peterhead, but it was certainly um, it, the, there was no suggestion that it was going to be anywhere else in Scotland. It was the the North East it was considered. Now, if you fast forward to the point where. You know, we get the details and some criteria set for, um, you know, what's needed for to become a freeport. You know, the people behind the northeast bid say that as soon as they saw the criteria, they knew knew they were facing an uphill battle. But certainly in the very early days, uh, I think the northeast bid was 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 the only only game in town. Mm-hmm. That that was the impression we were given anyway. Yeah, and we were chatting about this just sort of like by the by the other day, this idea that politicians, they seem to like competitions, but they keep forgetting that someone has to lose. And and the temptation for any politician whenever they visit anywhere is to say something that sounds a little bit good wherever they are. I mean, they did, the Boris Johnson did exactly the same in Rosyth. I think you were there for that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Boris, I, I was slightly confused at the time because it was the day that... Um... It was the day that they announced that the Scottish government and UK government had reached a deal that would finally pave the way for these free ports. But we were, it was well before they'd, you know, agreed the the kind of details of the process, the prospectus, um, the applications. But Boris kind of said, uh, he said, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he said, uh, I, I I can't tell you exactly where these free ports are going to be, but you can probably make an educated guess. Now, at the time, I kind of assumed he was meaning fourth because he was in Rosyth at the time and he travelled there on the day of the announcement. Um, but, but he was speaking to the P&J, so perhaps he meant um, the North East as well because that had been so heavily yeah. hinted at before. Yeah, and of course, yeah, as Adele said, there's a, you get the whole, the, whole, the whole shooting match in Calm's piece, which is available to read on the Press and Journal webpages. Now, inside Parliament in the past few days, it's been entirely one-way traffic, it feels, as far as, as the debate on the main stushy of the week goes. Many will be familiar with the gender reform laws which passed at Holyrood in marathon late-night sittings just before Christmas, but that wasn't to be the end of it. A few days before this recording, the UK government's Scottish Secretary, Alistair Jack, stepped in and blocked the law from gaining royal assent. 
it's the first time this has happened using uh, a part of the Scotland Act which underpins devolution. Callum, just turn to you again to as as I as I keep having to do to explain things to me in simple terms. Um, hold my hand through this one. What what is the constitutional constitutional mess that's now been created by the UK government and Scottish governments failing to agree on this law? Yeah, Andy. So this this uh, like you say, this is a part of the Scotland Act that's never been uh, used before. Uh, Section thirty five that um, uh, the UK government has triggered this week um i mean i think their argument is that this uh, gender recognition reform bill that's been um quite controversial in scotland but as you said kind of uh was approved last week um it, it, it sort of interferes with equalities laws which are uk wide um i mean i think some of the concerns relate to things like well i mean the, the law and the bill, the proposed law, uh, focuses on this kind of gender recognition certi- certificate part of it. Um, it's a document that, that, that uh, changes someone's legal sex on their birth certificate. And the reforms would kind of speed up that process, I think, and, and lower the age people can apply uh, mm-hmm. to 16. Now, I think from the UK government side, there's some concerns about, about uh, uh, sort of gender tourism, whether people you know, from England and Wales might come to Scotland and, and change their gender and then how that leaves them in terms of their rights in the rest of the UK. And, and also there's there's concerns about um, whether it's open to abuse by sort of uh, predatory yeah. men too. Yeah, and the Scottish government, they, they were very quick in their anger. The Conservatives and the SNP do like a good constitutional rammy, let's be honest. And Nicola Sturgeon called this a full frontal attack on devolution. We've been speaking to officials in both governments in, in the days since. There's, there really is a sense of them being at loggerheads here. Where does the spin end and the fact begin? One UK government insider was saying it's just not credible for the Scottish government to pretend, which was his words, that they were unaware of concerns with the implications of the bill. Um, it's, you know, it's tees up another nice argument between them. That's obviously the, um, the rather cynical view as well, because meanwhile, the people who uh, this is all supposed to help are left in limbo. And we, we were speaking about that with Maggie Chapman, who is the green MSP that Guy Anderson was alluding to earlier on in the in the in Adele's interview she was um, asked about about the the implications of this law being blocked well I mean she created a whole new arm of angry debate by saying that well maybe the, the it should be even lower lower the age maybe even kids as young as 8 might be able to take advantage of the new laws on on gender recognition um, you can read all about that and what went on after she unleashed that particular debate uh, on our on our pages. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks to Adele Merson, Callum Ross, producer Morvin McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. Vistushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following Vistushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, 
where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.